Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, we're in week 3,427,000 of the COVID crisis. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, when we were preparing for this show, I felt like I was personally struggling to find photo-related things to talk about. And fortunately, you found a, a bunch, um, some of which were really inspiring and some really great photography. But one of the things that I've noticed, you know, like in all industries, life is effectively slowed down. So in that mm. sense, people aren't really out there taking photos. There's not a lot of controversy per se. There's not a whole lot of new gear that's being announced, et cetera. So it's sort of challenging in that way to, to figure out what, what we should be talking about uh, on a weekly basis. But you still came up with some pretty good stuff. Yeah, well, I'm so happy that photo editors are still assigning out stories and being creative um, with visual storytelling at this time. Um, and one piece, uh, it was printed in the New York Times today. It went live on the internet earlier this week. It's their story, Still Lives, where they asked 15 photographers across America to document their life in quarantine. And there's just some really beautiful essays from photographers in New York City, Austin, Texas, San Francisco, um, some really, really amazing, beautiful work. And I'm really happy to see that without, I know you and I talked last year when the Lens blog uh, folded about how the New York Times was going to incorporate photography into their daily coverage. And I think that this is like a perfect example of them doing that and it just being very well integrated into the paper. The thing that I really enjoyed about this uh, set of essays was that journalists are taught not to be a part of the story. And this mm. was really about them. This was a chance for them to showcase parts of their lives and how they're they're dealing with it. And I think hearing the backstory behind some of the images was amazing. It It added so much to what was already a pretty incredible set of images. Um, and a few of them that I, I just wanted to give shout outs to people in New York city, Brittany Newman, uh, she's a 20 something, oh, yeah. uh, photographer working, uh, I think in their like internship program, um, yep. she came down with symptoms of COVID, uh, mild symptoms. And she talks about her, her mo mother brings her, uh, food to her door and knocks on the door. Um, and then she picks up the food and eats it. She took kind of a self-portrait from the hallway that shows her eating her food with her dog next to the bed. And then her mom also looks like she might be watching TV and eating her food. And I was reading the comment section um, and somebody pointed out the, the words on her mother's t-shirt. <laughs> and it says, life is short, make fun of it. <laughs> Amidst these, you know, and, and Brittany was telling the story about how her mother was trying to get unemployment benefits and couldn't get through. And it just kind of, just kind of broke my heart a little bit, you know? Yeah, that one absolutely stuck out to me too. And Brittany talks about her mother and how her mom's a professional clown. So the shirt makes perfect sense um, in that context. And then also just brings a whole new meaning um, in the shot that she took. Yeah. Now. Incredible. And then one other that I just, just kind of killed me a little bit was Sig Harvey. Um, oh God. Yeah. So Sig is pretty well known. She does, she's not a photojournalist, more like art style photography. She's up in Maine. Uh, 
and the quote that they pull, and I, and I read it and it's before the image actually appears, but she says, five days ago, I cut bare branches of forsythia and forced them to bloom in warm water. This morning they opened, turning my whole kitchen gold. I wept on my knees. And when you scroll mm. down to see the image, she put them in her bathtub and it's just an amazing image to know that that, that backstory Absolutely. Yeah. She, Sig is up in Rockport, Maine, and she talks a lot about how it's still winter up there. You know, for a lot of us in the United States, spring is coming into bloom, but up there it's still gray and, and gloomy. And that shot of the flowers in the bathtub is just remarkable. What did you like out of this uh, essay? Th- those two stuck out to me. I, I wrote notes about both those, but also Emily Cask um, in New Orleans, her story is phenomenal. She talks about she lives alone um, and she was robbed while she was at home. Um, and she just talks about the feeling of being scared and being alone um, and how how she's scared, whether she's with people now because of coronavirus, um, the risks of it or being home alone and potentially getting robbed. She said all, all of her gear um, was robbed out of her home. And, and one note that she says that I thought was really a fascinating self-defense is that when she leaves to like go on a walk, she puts a Bluetooth speaker um, on her front door and it plays noises of men coughing so that if anybody approaches, that's what they hear and then they don't want to go inside. I thought that was she ends, really fascinating. She ends her essay with, Originally, I worried that my greatest struggle in quarantine would be being alone in my house. Turns out that my greatest fear is that for a few moments, I might not be. It's just like... God, all these all these photographers, God, they're amazing they writers. I, yeah. <laughs> I was so impressed with all of the, um, with all of the notes that they had put. To, you know... I, I think a lot of people take for granted good writing when you read it, but I was actually, to your point, I was really blown away by the quality of writing of, of most of the, uh, the people. I mean, they, they have some really great insight, um, personal insight into what they're going through. I think a lot of them have had, like a lot of us have had time to sort of contemplate the situation right now. Mm-hmm. I saw one comment again that, that said, uh, I, I'll paraphrase because I can't remember it exactly. But the guy was complaining like, oh, so much uh, despair in all of these essays. Like, where's the levity and where's the sarcasm? And I was like, come on, man. Everyone can react however they want to react. These people are just trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of these people are out of assignments and out of work. You you noted... um, at the top about how, yeah, most of these photographers, the story isn't usually not about them. And I think that's one of the um, kind of interesting things that's happening is that everyone's story, no matter how small, even if it's just putting flowers in your bathtub and planting seeds and hoping that they grow, everybody's story is uh, relatable and important during this time. And so I thought this was a really cool way for the New York Times to highlight photographers. I used to wonder when network television ceased to be the dominant cultural phenomenon, you know, I'm thinking back to, for example, um, the Cosby show in the eighties or Seinfeld in the nineties where everybody was watching it, you know, 20 million people, 30 million people a week were watching it. And that was sort of the quote water cooler talk. And we had this Mm -hmm. shared experience around these fictional characters, et cetera. And with the rise of streaming platforms and games and all of these little 
niches of social media, I wondered where whether we as Americans and as citizens of the world would have a shared experience. And here we mm-hmm. are having this shared experience. And people are, you know, whether you're rich or poor, there's still this level of like melancholy around the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think as we realize that no matter what, life is not going to be the same like it was two months ago. Yeah. However, we emerge from this. And the other thing was there's a lot of people saying like there's no, not a lot of people, but some critics were saying there's not going to be any great art that comes out of this. Everyone's in despair and, and whatnot. And I think that as people accept the reality of the situation, we are going to see, because we have seen great photography emerge from yep. this. Mm-hmm. Last week, Already. yeah, last week we talked about Matt Mendelssohn's senior high school portraits. He continues yeah. to post these photos and the backstories on Facebook, and they're amazing. They're just amazing. Mm. It's amazing work. They're amazing kids. It's an amazing project. Yeah. I, at some point I almost am like, is it too soon to start doing these projects? You know what I mean? Like, how are we going? It'll be interesting to see how we're going to evolve in terms of um, how photographers are documenting their own personal lives. And if we get, if we as an audience, you know, get tired of, of seeing these like, yep, here I am through the window again, or, you know, or how, how just how they're going to evolve, I suppose. Over on the British Journal of Photography, uh, Hannah Abel Hirsch wrote a piece about the photographer Alberto Giuliani, who uh, has been documenting healthcare workers uh, in a series of portraits with lines and bruises on their faces due to wearing PPE for hours on end. And you've probably seen some of these images circulating on social media or variants or similar projects. But, you know, if there's going to be uh, a set of images that resonates with everyone from this time, I think it's going to be some of these types of portraits of healthcare workers. Um, he mm-hmm. has done a, a marvelous job. I think he's also done a marvelous job of not trying to over-exaggerate through toning the bruises on people's faces, like I've seen in, in other images. Um, these are very subtle portraits, and yet the lines and creases and bruises in people's faces are very, very apparent. They are. Th- this series, it's interesting, this series came on my radar through the Dove campaign, which has solicited these photos by him, um, and they've been running them on Instagram. And so whenever I'm scrolling on Instagram, I've come across a few of these Um and yeah, that was organized by, I believe, Ogilvy in Canada. Yeah, Ogilvy Canada um, put together this campaign for Dove. I have a friend who's an ER doctor in Honolulu, and he posted a selfie um, coming off of a long shift. And it's basically the same thing. You know, you see they're, they're wearing the PPE for hours on end. And by the time they come out, you know, their faces are sweaty. The lines are very deep in their face. It reminds me of previous photo projects where photographers have done before and after of athletes. So we've seen it with runners before and after the race. I've seen it with wrestlers. Uh, I've seen it with MMA fighters. I've seen it with boxers. Um, and my reaction to those have always been, yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, it didn't really mm. move me the way that these move me because... It's, it's not a sport. This is life and death for these people and their patients. Yeah, the marks really highlight those hours and hours of tedious uh, work and hard work without showing them in action. I think it's a really great way to do it through a portrait. 
In terms of other photojournalists taking on assignments, Catchlight uh, published actually a very informative, about hour-long COVID-19 safety training for visual journalists. And in it, they interview a physician and and, uh, infectious disease researcher, Janelle Stewart, um, who kind of just walks you through what a low risk assignment might look like and how you should protect yourself, what a medium risk assignment would be like and what a high risk assignment would be like. Um, And she answered a whole slew of questions coming in from photojournalists across the world, asking um, the best masks that they should wear, uh, how they should clean their gear, what's best for the for the eyes, should they be wearing goggles? Or do sunglasses just work? And she answers all of them with really thought out well answers. And I highly recommend checking it out if you are taking on assignments or considering doing so. Uh, I think it was about a month ago, maybe even a little bit more when, when the outbreak started, uh, I had talked to a few photographers and, and wanted to know how their photo editors and the organizations that were sending them on assignments were protecting them. Uh, and one photographer told me that Reuters was doing a really good job of providing PPE. Uh, and in certain areas, they were providing rental cars so that photographers didn't have to take public transportation or taxis or Ubers um, to do these assignments. So, nice. uh, you know, I think this is a situation, particularly if you're a freelancer, you want to know that the organization is doing this bare minimum of providing you protection when they're sending you mm-hmm. out on these assignments. And I did see uh, at least one person on Facebook, a freelancer, who said he declined taking on projects during COVID because uh, just to him, he had a, he has a family and it just wasn't worth the risk of contracting and bringing home. So people are making very personal decisions and, and hopefully these organizations are backing the photographers. But at the end of the day, man, you got to do what's best for, for yourself. And that's both from a health perspective as well as the economic perspective. Absolutely. Shifting to some stuff that's a little more fun and maybe lighthearted in nature. <laughs> yes. People have been pretty creative on Instagram trying to figure out how to entertain the masses when we can't do things in person. Uh, and of course, there have been a lot of virtual dance parties, but you found a, a cool one with Diplo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I definitely think it's interesting. I know you and I talk a lot about Instagram in terms of how professional photographers should use it and yada yada. But right now, Instagram is becoming the go-to nightclub, essentially. And that is also because Diplo um, goes live on Instagram Thursday through Sunday nights with a different theme on each night. And he gets upwards of, you know, 8,000 viewers every time he's on. Um, And he is just... He, he's loving it. The New York Times did an interview with him and he's like, I'm so happy not to be doing, he normally does like 300 live shows a year. I mean, the guy makes like $25 million it's a year, a ton, yeah. right? So he's, yeah, it's a ton. <laughs> and so he's chilling. He's doing uh, live streams on IG, Twitch, and YouTube. And uh, according to, according to Diplo, FOMO doesn't exist anymore. So Alan, you don't have to be sad about missing I've, out. I've seen that. I've seen people say that. And I think that <laughs> I, I think that it's partially true because there's, I mean, nobody's gathering together. There's no uh, energy of a large crowd that you're missing out on. It's just people sitting at their computers watching Netflix and or listening to Diplo live stream on Instagram. So yeah, I, I believe that as part of the new reality. Another thing that's taking 
Instagram Live is uh, the Respectfully Justin Show, which is essentially a strip club pop-up. And um, it is hosted by 28-year-old Justin LeBoy and Diddy's uh, 26-year-old son, Justin Dior Combs. They are co-hosting strip club nights, basically. Um, And what they do is they pin the dancer's cash app uh, username at the top of the feed so that people can be giving the dancers money. Some are getting upwards of $18,000, which is amazing. And what's funny about these shows is that like famous people are tuning in like Meek Mill and Kevin Durant and The Weeknd and then Diplo when he's not live streaming his own shows um, are going in and tuning in. (laughs) So of course, when I saw this article, I think it came out maybe a week or two ago. Of course, from an academic standpoint, I had to go check it out. And (laughs) part of what they're doing, you know, Instagram doesn't allow nudity. So they create these effectively burner accounts and you have to know what hashtag, you know, or know people that know people to find out which account to follow, because it's going to be this, this very transient pop-up account. um, And they, they live cast these strippers and, you know, it, so sociologically, to me, it's pretty interesting because when you think about a stripper, you know, I think the average age of a stripper in America is something like 23. And, you know, okay. moral moral judgments aside, these people are working pretty hard in most cases. Um, you know, yep. trying in some for some of them it's temporary. They're putting themselves they're putting themselves through school. And for some of them it's it's just their kind of occupation until they they burn out or they age out. But here's a situation like many service-based occupations, you can't do it anymore in person. Right. And the mm-hmm. fact that this sort of cottage industry has popped up and the fact that they can they figured out how to monetize it by simply adding, you know, these virtual tip jars of the Cash App mm-hmm. or the Venmo account or the PayPal or whatever. Um, it's not dissimilar uh, to what musicians are doing. So I'm all for uh, people coming up with these cool ideas and, you know, the human ingenuity to figure out how to support different industries and different workers who are just trying to make ends meet while, you know, 22 million people are out of work in this country. Absolutely. Did you see um, in Oregon, they did the drive through Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Those photos were pretty cool. So I, sh- I should point out in regards to the uh, Justin LeBoy strip club, virtual strip club, I was not able to figure out how to get into one. <laughs> so if anybody has some tips. Couldn't figure it yeah, out. Yeah, no, I'm, you know, I'm curious. I'm curious to see what's up. <laughs> well, now, so now it's a members only thing. Oh. So you might have missed the boat. Sorry. Well, that's okay. Y'all have fun in there. <laughs> yeah. We mentioned it briefly before, but there's a whole... Uh, movement of people recreating uh, famous artworks in real life using pieces of fabric and different household items. Um, And it's a way to sort of pass the time. And a number of uh, museums have been encouraging people to find uh, paintings and artwork in their collections and then recreate them at home. Uh, And there's a whole Facebook group uh, dedicated to it. And another Times article that we'll post on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com talks about how the Russians kind of did it and the world has joined in. Uh, So some really cool work on there. Yeah, absolutely. So this was started um, a a Facebook group, which I cannot pronounce the name of. Like I 
I'm not gonna be able to say it. <laughs> but if you translate it um, from Russian, it is the words visual arts and isolation combined. The Facebook group has over 500,000 members. And it was started uh, in Moscow by a project manager at a tech company. Um, and yeah, it's just everybody contributing, chiming in with their own imitations. Some are doing Renaissance paintings, some are doing abstract art. So the phenomenon of people recreating artwork obviously extends back a few years and it's seeing a pun intended renaissance right now because people are bored at home. (laughs) Um, It it really reminds me of uh, a project uh, probably six or seven years ago. There was a woman named Nina Kachadurian who would go into airplane lavatories and use the paper towels or the toilet seats to recreate uh, her series called Lavatory Self-Portraits in the Flemish Style. And <laughs> I've never seen those. <laughs> they're brilliant. They're really, <laughs> they're really great. Of course, you know, the lighting is that crappy fluorescent lighting in most airplane bathrooms. So, you know, the lighting isn't, isn't great, but they are fantastic. And if you wanted sort of a reference and, you know, it clearly isn't the genesis of this uh, current phenomenon, but they're, they're really, really great. I have a friend in... Jackson, Wyoming, uh, named Matt Stern, and he and his wife have been doing this uh, pretty consistently for the past few weeks as well. Uh, you can look him up on Facebook because all of his images are public, the ones that he's doing. Uh, and he does the diptych. He does the their recreation put against uh, the original piece of artwork. And they're really, really good. You know? <laughs> I was... I was scrolling through. I love the uh, the Star Wars one with R T R two J D two R two D two R two D two. Oh man, I'm not a Star Wars buff. Yeah, yeah, that one's. Really- but but those are cute. <laughs> and you know, I should also point out he. So he's. I believe he's a anthropologist by training, and he's also a really really great photographer. Um, but obviously, you can't be out in the field right now, and obviously, the opportunities to go out and take photos are also limited. So to see people. You know, as we've said before, they're just trying to survive, trying to figure out how to pass the time during the day and not go insane. So I love, 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 love these. We want to end this week's show on a happy note. And uh, we have two uh, sets of images. Over in California, there has been a bloom of bioluminescent algae in the water. And so a lot of people have been going to the beach. Los Angeles uh, Times photographer J.L. Clendenin uh, went out to the beach and took these amazing photos of just the shore break. And it looks like a ginormous glow stick. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's this bioluminescent blue. It literally looks like a huge glow stick. I don't know how else to to describe it. No, I'd say that's right. It's like the, the water is glow in the dark. I've only heard of this outside of Puerto Rico. But I didn't even know that it could happen off the coast of California. Yeah, there are a couple places, and I've been to the one in Puerto Rico. Um, there are a couple places that have this almost year round, and they're famous tourist destinations for it. But I, I wasn't aware that you know the bloom was happening in, in L.A. And maybe it doesn't happen very often. Maybe it's kind of the, the lack of people or something that's contributing to that. But so Jay's yeah. images are really great. And then I saw a set of images where a guy was out in a boat. And the dolphins were swimming through the bioluminescence. Oh, wow. And so this was posted on the OC register, the Orange Orange County register. And it is just amazing. It looks like a science fiction movie. It looks like Avatar, you know? (laughs) 
So the photographer's oh. name is Patrick Coyne, and he was on a boat uh, with his friend Ryan Lawler, who's the owner of Newport Coastal Adventure. Uh, and they thought they would just find little, little, you know, fish in the water swimming in the bioluminescence. And then a pod of dolphins came by and it's just magical. You know, we've been seeing all these uh, memes on Twitter that are like, nature is healing. We are the virus. And it's usually just been like <laughs> joke images. Right. And I'm so, I'm so happy to see these very real images, um, of nature thriving without us <laughs> taking over. <laughs> Uh, we are going to leave you with uh, a story out of Hawaii as well. And so Hawaii is a breeding ground for humpback whales who come down from Alaska and then uh, deal with their young and their calves here in Hawaii during the winter season. And usually during the winter season, there are a ton of boat tours uh, and whale watching tours that go out. The whale researchers have in the past few years done more sophisticated tracking mechanisms and they use a suction cup uh, stack that has a camera on it and uh, accelerometers and GPS and all this kind of stuff to track the animals. And as a result of the, the decrease in boat traffic, they're finding that the whales are like much more relaxed because they don't have to deal with, with the boat traffic and the acoustical noise and whatnot. Um, and they flew a, flew a drone out there to observe uh, a mom and a calf. Uh, and it's just, it's just amazing. Oh, that's darling. It's just really amazing. I should point out that it is illegal to fly a drone over a whale in Hawaii unless you have a permit from NOO, NOAA, uh, the Ocean and Atmospherics uh, Association. Um, and so all of the videos that have been posted by the Manoa Marine Mammal Research Program from the University of Hawaii uh, lists their permit number in the upper right corner of the video just to reinforce the fact that you cannot fly your drones over like I <laughs> contemplated doing a couple years ago before I'd done my research. Um, they are very sensitive to the noise, so you don't want to be hovering over them with your, your drones. Um, oh, no. Yeah. Nope, don't do it. Uh, but you can find that video and all the other uh, pieces that we talked about today at our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Here's hoping to see more great photography and more human ingenuity next week. I know. I know. I, I feel like every week it's a little like, okay, what new things are we going <laughs> to see? And you guys just keep, keep coming up with it. I love it. Fantastic. Everyone take care. We'll see you next week. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.